Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're joined by Corey DeAngelis. He's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom and the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation. Today we're going to talk primarily about homeschooling, but also about school choice. And as sort of a disclaimer, I probably should say that uh, my wife and I, we homeschool with the emphasis on my wife doing the homeschooling. Uh, I help out a little bit. Um, And we've gone all the way from she's homeschooled our oldest um, all the way through high school and is continuing to um, educate our younger son. So we have a little bit of a background in homeschooling. But Corey, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the program is that there's quite a hubbub from a recent piece by a Harvard Law School professor named Elizabeth Bartholet. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. uh, but she was writing in the Harvard Magazine and she called for a ban on homeschooling. Tell us a little bit about that piece because I know you've written some responses to that. What what was the basis of her argument and what did she get wrong? Yeah, she calls for a ridiculous presumptive ban on homeschooling and essentially paints with a super broad brush Uh, and essentially arguing that homeschool families are all abusing their kids and that they're not providing them with an adequate education and that somehow the government education system would save all of these children who are you know, um, not receiving uh, a great education or, or being abused in, in their homes, which is completely ridiculous. That's a really broad brush. And she uses uh, really extreme cases and applies that to the population of the home of homeschoolers in the U.S. without even really mentioning that there's severe cases of neglect and abuse and uh, educational maltreatment going on in the government school system. Uh, and if you look at the most rigorous data on this, uh, you know, applying her lo- same logic, she should be calling for a presumptive ban on government schooling, not homeschooling. Homeschool kids tend to do better academically and socially, and abuse rates tend to be higher in government schools than than in homeschool situations. Yeah, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that one of the one of the studies that she relied on was a study of like 28 families, something a very small sample size. Is that is that right? Yeah, and I tweeted about that yesterday, and you know she wrote about this in the Boston Globe, and she made the claim that there's evidence that kids are getting abused more in the home than at than at schools, which I thought that was completely ridiculous. So I followed the link; it goes to her 80 page report. You got to search and search and search in there, and you can find uh, uh, this this claim made in one study. And when you get to the study, it's just 28 students. And the authors themselves say you shouldn't do any statistical tests on these results. It's it's a convenient sample. It's something that we cherry picked. And they even come forth and say that. But that didn't stop Elizabeth Bartholet from making this ridiculous claim and extrapolating this extreme, uh, you know, outlier to the overall population of homeschoolers. So it's complete, you know, intellectual. Uh, I don't like to use this term lightly, but intellectual dishonesty. Uh, I believe, and and it's completely irresponsible of a Harvard professor engaging in this kind of anti-intellectual, faux, uh, academic um, uh, k- kind of argumentation and logic, and and really you know grasping at straws to make a case to have a presumptive ban on homeschooling. And again, even if even if she did rely on strong evidence that found that for whatever reason 
abuse was higher in the homeschool sector than in the government school sector. That's not what she found. The study was not causal. They even said it's not representative. Uh, and, and most of the preponderance of the evidence finds the opposite. But even if she did find that, her policy implication wouldn't be warranted. You know, if, if 2% of families or even, you know, 1% of families did abuse their kids in the homes, that, that would not be uh, grounds to uh, take away all of our rights for the results of a few bad actors. Uh, we shouldn't punish 100% of families for uh, the actions of a few bad actors. That's essentially like ha- uh, turning our legal system on its head. And essentially, her argument is that we should all be guilty until proven innocent. And that's completely backwards. In America, we're all innocent until br- uh, proven guilty. Just imagine if she applied the same logic to other areas of life. If 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 her her logic applied and it was justified at the age of five, uh, who's to stop her from saying that we should send our kids to the government at age zero? Why wait until the age of five if it's actually justified to have a presumptive ban at homeschooling on uh, at age five? And then even after we get out of homeschool, you know, if we apply her logic to adults, um, there is some possibility of abuse going on in relationships, right? Would that mean that we should all be mandated, 100% of couples be mandated to go to government counselors each week? Because after all, if we had nothing to hide, uh, you know, uh, then we shouldn't have anything to worry about is essentially her argument. We could also get rid of the Fourth Amendment right to uh, unreasonable search and seizure. We, we should also get rid of the Fifth Amendment, according to her logic, because, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, then you should have to talk is essentially her line of reasoning. And I think most people think that it's completely ridiculous. And I think that's why that article got so much pushback, uh, because it's just such a radical idea. What is a presumptive ban? I know you yep. mentioned that, but like, how is that different from different Yeah, bans? so it's not a, so a lot of people are getting it confused with an outright ban. An outright ban means it's, it's illegal to homeschool, period. And that would be even more radical. But a presumptive ban is pretty close and essentially turns, it, it, it turns the system around instead of having the government have to find evidence of abuse to take your rights away. It's essentially everyone needing to prove their innocence to the government and getting permission from the government. So it turns our legal system on its head from, you know, a presumption of evidence to a presumption of guilt and us having to prove to government bureaucrats why we should have the right to educate our own children at home. And so it's that that's the idea behind a presumptive ban. So and let me ask um, just about what the situation is now, because I know I have a number of friends who between uh, late February and early March decided to homeschool their kids, right? For reasons which uh, people can probably guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, these folks were doing it before the school shut down and whatnot. So they, they were a little early. And I know that there seemed to be kind of a lot of variation in how much bureaucracy you had to go to if you decide that you wanted to pull your kids out of out of school, depending on what state it is. There's some states where you could just say goodbye, and and then there are other states where it seemed like it was a lot uh, more of a hassle. So what I mean, what is the situation now? I assume that there aren't any states that have adopted what this particular professor no. has said. But uh, do you know? I mean, if someone decides, you know, I think I'd like to start homeschooling. How how quick and easy can they make that decision at this point? Yeah, it, like you said, it depends on the state. And if you go to the HSLDA website, if you just Google search 
HSLDA homeschooling laws, they have a map. And so you can scroll over your, your state and see what the particular requirements are. There are some states like Massachusetts, which have really uh, uh, pretty onerous regulations where you have to do all the state standardized tests and, and, and report on, on testing results. But then there are other states where you just kind of have to give a, a, a notification and maybe sign up. Uh, but there's nothing like a presumptive ban on homeschooling in the United States. I will say in other countries, a few other countries, there's a an outright uh, ban on homeschooling. In, in, in Germany, for example, uh, since 1938, Germany has outlawed homeschooling, which makes it pretty awkward in Germany right now, since essentially everyone is kind of getting around that ridiculous law because everyone kind of has to because we're all forced to homeschool with the government-run schools being closed down, whether, whether the German government likes it or not. Uh, but that's one of the few Nazi-era laws that still exist in Germany today, uh, and I, I would argue they should get rid of that. But most, but most of the world uh, does not have a ban on homeschooling. Germany is is obviously the exception, not the rule here. And you know, in in the U.S., we've been moving towards more educational freedom, not less, in the realm of homeschooling, and, and rightly so. Um, you know, because all these regulations coming from the government essentially defeats the purpose of homeschooling. It turns homeschools essentially into the government schools that the families are trying to escape. Uh, and it really homogenizes the education sector and makes it more standardized and structured, which is, you know, defeats the purpose again of, of homeschooling. Um, so, yeah, one way to figure it out, what, what you need to do if you want to homeschool is to go to that HSLDA website. Uh, just Google HSLDA uh, homeschool laws by state. So you mentioned other countries that, that uh, I think it was last week, uh, The Economist had an interesting piece and their take was that closing schools, presumably public schools, would exacerbate inequality among students, which is interesting because it kind of comes from a completely different perspective from Bartholet's piece, right? So it may be unfair because maybe you haven't read that piece, but I still want you to comment on it. What do you think mm -hmm. of that line of thinking that we need public schools to ensure, you know, it's laughable, you know, right? It's laughable because we don't have equality in the public school system. I, I like to call it the government school system because these schools are run by the government. They're operated by the government. They're funded by the government. They're regulated by the government. They're compelled by the government. Uh, they're not accessible to all members of the public, like a public park. So these are government schools, just to be clear. Uh, but the government school system is not... Uh, equitable in any sense of the, uh, of the word. I mean, they're funded at different rates for different levels of advantage because they're tied to uh, property tax values. So there's a lot more funding for uh, schools that are in more advantaged areas for whatever reason. But then quality differs. Um, the, 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 the schools serving the more advantaged students tend to have higher quality teachers. Uh, and so the, the government schools are failing the least advantaged students the most uh, and look, I mean, we get into this argument with school choice as well. I mean, rich people already have school choice in the current system, right? I mean, if you can, if you can afford an expensive house in, in a fancy neighborhood and you're assigned to a, a high quality school, then you already have school choice. If you can afford to pay for a private school out of pocket, you already have school choice. So school choice is an equalizer. And I would argue homeschooling could be an equalizer in the same sense, especially if we allowed for things like education savings accounts to help low income families. Um, uh, you know, offset the cost of homeschooling or, you know, if homeschooling doesn't work, homeschooling, you know, may not work for every single family, depending on your own individual situation, uh, then we should let people spend those education dollars to pay for a private school tuition or even some form of hybrid homeschooling model. Um, but, you know, the key here is not one type of schooling for, for all. 
Uh, the key here is that we should all have a choice in the matter. And, and those education dollars shouldn't stay in a system that is not educating our children. It should follow the kid to wherever they're getting an education, including in the home. Yeah, I, we definitely want to circle back to the the topic of school choice and even charter schools here in a moment. But back to, you know, sort of talking about homeschooling, I know one of the things that uh, I see you do a lot on Twitter uh, is I think you sort of relish telling, you know, sharing the stories of people, parents that um, are having some, some successes and their students are, their, their children are enjoying this homeschool experience. But, you know, as I mentioned before, my, my wife is a homeschooling educator and she's very adamant about the point that what's going on right now with most families is not homeschooling in her mind. It's crisis schooling. And it's almost, you know, almost g would give homeschooling a bad name because there's not, you know, there wasn't thought that went yeah. into the preparation for the curriculum for the school year. And, you know, all the, you know, sort of the stereotypes about homeschooling and not having social activities, you know, our kids have so much social activities and clearly we're not doing that during the social distancing. And there's not the opportunity for all the interactive learning that homeschooling, you know, really thrives on. So uh, I don't know if you talk about that a little bit and talk about a little bit some of these anecdotes, maybe even some data mm -hmm. about how parents are reacting to maybe probably their first taste of homeschooling, even if it's sort of maybe not what homeschooling yeah. really is about. Yeah. I mean, this is a really crappy form of homeschooling. If, if, you know, <laughs> if you compare it to what homeschooling ought to look like in a different world where we can all go outside and play and visit museums and theaters and, and go through all those, that those forms of socialization and learning outside of the actual physical home, you would think that people would may, may have a negative view of homeschooling, but there's actually been the opposite as far as anecdotes and hard data and, and evidence. I'll get a little into both of those. But families have been saying on social media and elsewhere, uh, I've shared some stories of families who have actually committed and unenrolled their students from the government-run school system and actually took the leap already and said, "I like this so much, and I, you know, this allowed me to open my, my you know, open my eyes to." the failures of the government run school system and open my eyes that I can actually do this, that I can handle homeschooling or virtual schooling. And so that we're seeing these examples is a, you know, it's really telling just how poorly the, the some government schools are performing and, and, and how uh, homeschooling can actually be a really great thing. Obviously there are some families saying the opposite that they think it's really hard uh, but we do have data behind this. EdChoice just released a nationally representative sample, a, a survey of parents in the United States. And they released it just a couple of days ago. And until now, we we only had these anecdotes of families saying good things, families saying bad things, families saying that, you know, their kids feel less anxious, they feel less stressed, they feel happier, um, and, and that they're learning a lot more in, in less time and, and they're, they're more engaged with the schoolwork. Um, we, that's all we had until now. And I mean, I also say that CNN had an interesting headline, uh, either from a couple of days ago, it was pretty recent. Uh, CNN came out with the story, why some kids are happier right now. And one of the quotes from there was why some kids are happier right now. Another unexpected offense effects of quarantine. So a lot of families saying positive things, but again, to get back to this ed choice survey, nationally representative sample of parents, they found that parents were were about twice as likely to say that they have a more favorable view of homeschooling as a result of COVID-19 than the proportion of parents who said the opposite, who said that they were less favorable. Um, so of course we have people having positive and negative views, but the data 
tend to suggest already that families are having a much more positive view of, of homeschooling. If, if anything, the specific data point is 52% of parents say they have a a more favorable view of homeschooling as a result of COVID-19, and only half that proportion, 26% reported that they had a less favorable view of homeschooling. Uh, 22%, the remaining you know, fifth of parents said that they uh, you know, weren't sure and they didn't know either way. But the takeaway there is uh, it looks like a positive story here. And, and like you said, this isn't even what homeschooling could actually be. You know, it's unplanned. It, you know, people are locked up in their homes uh, and, and it's involuntary, essentially it came out of nowhere. Um, and so, uh, you know, the next thing that we want to find out is how many parents are, you know, we're seeing more favorable views, but what's going to be interesting is to see how many parents actually take that leap of faith and switch. Again, we've only had an- anecdotes here, uh, but if you think about it, the government school monopoly has essentially nothing to gain and everything to lose from this crisis. And I think that's why so many government school monopolists are freaking out right now and uh, launching all these all-out attacks on homeschooling is because if you think about it, even if 100% of families who weren't homeschooling say they don't like homeschooling and they, they figure out that they don't want to do so, uh, well, then the, the government school system has the same amount of students return uh, post-pandemic. But let's say only 2% of families say, I'm going to make the switch. And we've already seen some evidence of switching. Uh, If 2% say they're going to make a switch, that's a million students switching from government schools Mm. to the homeschool or virtual school setting. And that's a lot of money tied. You know, it's $15,000 per child. That's up to $15 billion per, you know, uh, per school year for those million million students. Um, So this could have huge consequences for the, the monopoly school system. And I think that's why they're freaking out. I think one thing that's sort of a misconception about homeschooling, at least from our experiences, you know, there's, there's, there's truly the do it yourself homeschooling where parents come up with entirely with their own uh, curriculum, but then there's so many other programs that homeschoolers can be part of. And that's what we, we, you know, we're part of a homeschool campus, if you will. And that's, they actually refer to it as Mm -hmm. a campus where they actually meet once a week together. And there's other programs like this where they meet, they call it university style, where they meet at least twice a week with, you know, these homeschool programs. So there's entire communities there. Um, Maybe, you know, if you've got a background on that, talk a little bit about maybe some of those options and even just curriculum information for people that Mm -hmm. might be interested in this sort of thing. I know, for instance, uh, Carrie McDonald's very outspoken about such Mm -hmm. things and she has a lot of great information. But beyond sort of the legal side of what what would you have to, the hoops you'd have to jump through Mm -hmm. legally, you know, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the resources that are out there for curriculum and such? Yeah. And like you said, Carrie McDonald's a, a force to be reckoned with in, in the homeschooling movement. I, 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 I would recommend everyone follow her work. And she's actually shared a list of resources at the Cato Institute website for free, free online resources to help families um, uh, adjust to this uh, period of, of, of unexpected homeschooling. But some of those resources are things like Khan Academy. It's available for free. You can you know look up tons of different subjects and your, your students can watch the videos and learn uh, a lot of high quality material and different subjects. Uh, you can look at Ted ed. So like the Ted, the Ted, um, Ted talks, they have a whole YouTube channel for educational materials. You can look at that, but there's also been almost an almost spontaneous uh, gathering of families uh, who have been going through this 
crises together and sharing resources for new homeschool families and existing homeschool families. Uh, it's called learneverywhere.org. And there's a group of, I want to say over 13,000 families who've already come together sharing these resources. And it's extremely helpful. I've, I've checked it out and it's a, it's a great resource. You can also find a Facebook group. It's called learn everywhere. You just look on, on Facebook and you'll see that group and you can, you can, uh, um, access it yourself and find all the resources there as well. It's been a really great resource for families during this time. Uh, but like you were mentioning as well, homeschooling doesn't have to be, you know, one family, um, you know, teaching their own kids every subject. You can essentially outsource the the process of homeschooling with things like hybrid homeschooling. So you can have, you know, maybe in-person home, you know, in-person schooling for a couple of days a week for, for less for fewer hours than what they would have experienced in the, in the public school system. Uh, and then maybe do homeschooling uh, the rest of the week. Uh, so it's called hybrid homeschooling. Uh, you can do things like micro schools or homeschool co-ops where, you know, you have you have some families uh, and communities of families getting together and maybe you teach reading to all the students and maybe another fam- you know, another family teaches math to the students. And so you can essentially set up like a mini school homeschool community. Um, people might argue, well, maybe that's not actually uh, a homeschool since it's it's multifamily, but it's essentially a type of homeschooling that I think could help families uh, if they need help with adjusting and they can't, you know, have all the one-on-one time a hundred percent of the time for whatever that reason is, whether it's their job uh, situation or if they don't just if they feel like they they don't have the expertise in a particular subject. So there's a lot of resources to adjust. And, you know, there's not one size fits all to, to homeschooling. So let, let's talk a little bit more broadly about, because in addition to homeschooling, I think another part of your job title was school choice. So uh, what does school choice mean to you? Yeah, there's, I mean, a lot of people get confused with school choice because there's so many versions of school choice. There's public school choice, private school choice, uh, there's education choice. Uh, but just for listeners, the basic idea is allowing the money to follow the child to whatever educational environment works best for them. And then there's tons of forms of that. Um, but essentially, in the traditional school system in the United States is set up in a way where you live in a particular place, you live in, a, in your residence, and your, your child is residentially assigned to one particular school, a government-run school. And if they want to go anywhere else, they're they're pretty much out of luck. You'd essentially have to uh, go through a lot of costs, and you know you only have a few highly costly or ineffective options. You can move to a more expensive house that's assigned to a better school. That's not a feasible option. Just imagine if you had to move houses to uh, if you wanted to change restaurants or if you wanted to change your grocery store. That wouldn't make any sense to require people to move houses. Um, and so it's extremely costly, high transaction costs. You can pay out of pocket for a private school and essentially pay for two schools. Um, so what I've argued is there's a lot of monopoly power in that current system uh, because there, there's so much you know, a transaction cost associated with opting out of a school that's not working for you for whatever reason. So school choice in simple terms is letting kids take those dollars that are going currently going to the government-run school, uh, whether they like it or not, or whether they attend that school or not, and attach those dollars to the family, just like we do with food stamps. With food stamps, we don't residentially assign kids to or families to Walmarts that are that are or government-run grocery stores. Uh, people would think that would be completely rid- ridiculous, 
Uh, and we don't force people to spend all of their food stamps in one place, a government-run grocery store. We allow people to take those food stamps to private providers. You can go to Walmart if you want, but you can also take those dollars to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or Harris Teeter or Publix, depending on where you live. Um, and so similarly, the idea is to allow education dollars to go to families and let families use those education dollars on approved education expenditures and to follow the child to whatever school is working better, best for them. And that could be their residentially assigned government school. But if it's not working for them, they should be able to take those dollars to a private school of choice, a, uh, a charter school, a magnet school. They should be able to use those funds for uh, covering homeschool expenses. There's no reason why we should fund systems instead of students. And, you know, if you look at any other type of publicly funded program, uh, it's essentially, you know, K through 12 education is the exception to the rule. Uh, just look at just look at Pell Grants the, or, or GI Bill. These are essentially vouchers for higher education. We allow students to, to pick the school, the university that they go to, whether it's a public university or a, or a, or a, or a private university, a religious university or a non-religious university. And we allow those dollars to follow the individual. We don't tell people that they need to spend their Pell Grant dollars or GI Bill dollars at the nearest community college. We don't. We don't tell them that. It wouldn't make any sense to do that. Um, with Medicaid or Medicare, we allow people to take those dollars to the hospital that works best for them. We don't residentially assign them, or, and we don't give those dollars directly to the hospital. So similarly with education, uh, with school choice, uh, the way that we should set it up is just like these other programs where the money goes to the child and follows the child to whatever school works best for them, and including that should be the home as well. So... Here's one thing I don't fully understand. What is a charter school and how does this play into school choice? Yeah. So again, the way I define school choice is anything that gets you away from that residentially assigned monopoly system that allowed, that breaks up residential assignment, that allows you to pick your school in some way. So the most basic form of that is allowing students to choose some other form of a government-run school. And so, you know, that really breaks up the, that, that residential assignment mechanism. So that's, that's something called open enrollment choice. You can pick your government school. Building off of that, there's, there's things like magnet schools. Uh, again, this is another form of a government-run school, but they tend to be specialized. They can have selective admissions. They're slightly re less regulated, um, but they're still run by the government. And so it's still government school choice. Uh, then we get into charter schools. That's the next level up where these are independently run, so they're not directly operated by the government, but they're completely publicly funded. And in states uh, across the country, every, every state that I know of that has charter schools, and the U.S. Department of Education also defines it this way, they define them as public schools of choice, even though you know, it's kind of like a quasi-private school. But it's, they're, they're, high, they're pretty heavily regulated by the government. They're completely funded by government, you know, almost completely funded by government uh, funding based on enrollment counts of students. Um, so these are kind of like quasi-private, quasi-public schools of choice. And those are charter schools. And then a little bit more freedom gets you to also being able to choose private schools. So this is the idea that Milton Friedman put, put forward in 1955. But I will say vouchers uh, have actually existed before Milton Friedman was even born in places like Maine and Vermont in the late 1800s. Uh, they had voucher programs called town tuitioning programs. Um, um, so, I mean, this is an additional form of choice where you can pick your private school too and take those dollars with you to cover private school tuition and fees. Um, and then we have the best form of choice, in my opinion, is an education savings account, where when you opt out of your government-run school, 
you don't have to take that funding in the form of, of a voucher. You can take that funding and put it into an education savings account where you can spend that money on private school tuition if you desire, but you could also use the funding for to cover homeschool expenses. You could use the funding to cover uh, tutoring, um, um, textbooks, calculators, any government-approved educational expenditure. And it really takes us, ESAs really take us, education savings accounts, that is, take us from school choice to education choice and allows families to customize each of their ch- children's individual educations. And so, I mean, that's, that, that all seems kind of complicated, but the basic idea is that educational freedom and, and how I define school choice or education choice is getting everybody away from that, the system where you have to be residentially assigned to one school and funding and, and, and that your child's education dollars, uh, you know, going to, you know, have to go to in the current system to the government school, whether you like it or not, or whether your school, att- your, your child attends that school or not. And it really gets us to having the money follow the child to wherever they're being educated. So one uh, common objection that you hear to vouchers is that if vouchers were to be given or used for private schools, that it would inevitably come with strings attached and you would end Mm -hmm. up with greater regulation by the government of private schools. And of course, we do see that at the university system where schools that that accept federal student loans have mm-hmm. to abide, even private schools have to abide by all sorts of different rules regarding you know, Title IX and other, other stuff like that. So, you know, what what about that danger that yep. once, you, once you get private schools, you know, hooked on the voucher money, uh, that you're going to end up, government's going to end up sticking its nose in and uh, maybe preventing private schools from operating Mm -hmm. in a way that has made them more successful. That's absolutely a fear that I've written extensively about and done some empirical research about that if if a program is highly regulated, the private schools essentially start to turn into public schools. And that's something we obviously don't want. Uh, But we need to realize that the default option in in the government-run school system today at the K-12 level, at least, is that 82% of kids are in government-run schools today that are extremely highly regulated, and allowing for a voucher program could allow for students to escape those highly regulated government schools and at least allow some degree of flexibility and choice into that government school system. And on net, even if kids, if private schools become a little bit more regulated, we'll have a higher number of private schools because of increased demand. Um, But then, and then also... Uh, you know, the, even if the private school voucher programs are regulated, they'll be less regulated than the extremely regulated government-controlled schools that, that, that children essentially have to attend otherwise. So my argument is that on net, essentially, this should lead to a more free society, even though when you apply these arguments to things like higher ed, we essentially, you know, uh, find ourselves arguing against things like Pell Grants because, you know, ultimately, Pell Grants, relative to the default option in higher ed, uh, essentially increases government control and government influence of the education system for higher ed. Same thing with pre-K programs, uh, and, and that's why I've called, you know, argued against pre-K programs. Uh, they increase government involvement, but it's a little different with uh, with K through 12. And I think this is why libertarians and and every political you know, leaning should be for voucher programs or other types of private school choice programs, because it actually uh, counterintuitively almost is a government program that, that reduces the overall influence 
of government and, and, and reduces government size and, and taxpayer spending because vouchers are, tend to be funded at amounts lower than the uh, amount that this child would have received in the government-run school. Um, and then also another thing that libertarians should be able to get behind is that these programs are all vo- voluntary. No private school is forced to uh, accept any voucher funding at all. So if they don't need it, they, they you know they, they have a model that's working and they don't want the regulations. They don't have to accept any of the funding at all. But the reality is, you know, only nine percent of kids are in private schools today, and most you know most most families are just opting for that highly regulated government school system. And again, you know, if we can get some more people into private schools, even if there is some string attached, we should allow for that. And and look, since it's voluntary, though, there will be a lot of private schools that say, no, I'm not taking the funding. And we've seen that in places that have high amounts of regulations. So let's look at Louisiana, for example. They have one of the most highly regulated voucher programs in the United States and arguably the world. And only a third of the private schools in Louisiana uh, you know, accepted and participated in the voucher program in the first year because a lot of them, particularly the higher quality private schools, said, you know, no way. Uh, you know, my my customers like my specialized approach. They don't want to go to a government school, so I'm not going to accept this government interference. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially the biggest takeaway is that it's voluntary. So a while back, I heard uh, Matthew Cottonetti speak um, at a National Review Institute function. And he made a comment, and I don't remember the exact wording, um, but he essentially was making the point that conservatives need to do more than simply argue for school choice, that they should be arguing for better public education because the vast majority of students are in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is your response to that? And you know, how, what is sort of your viewpoint, your libertarian viewpoint on how you make public schools better and Mm -hmm. maybe what's the role of school choice in, in even making public schools better? Yeah. You, I mean, and my first response is that you can't, you can't, there's, there's pretty much nothing that we can do to fix the government school system absent a, you know, some form of bottom up accountability through school choice. I mean, for a long time, conservatives have fought for forms of top down accountability using heavy hand of government, like state testing mandates. And I get, you know, I get the, the, uh, the, the, the arguments for that. In that, you know, if you don't have bottom-up accountability, maybe we should have some type of standardized testing or something. But, you know, kids are way more than test scores, and that has a lot of unintended consequences. And that leads to, you know, teachers teaching to the test, and, you know, you miss out on, on a lot of character education and maybe things that aren't measured on the test. So it, it creates a bunch of perverse incentives. And again, you know, um, not a lot of strings, are, you know, not a lot of uh, accountability net mechanisms are even uh, attached to schools that aren't even performing well on standardized tests. So even if tests were valuable, it's not like the accountability mechanisms from the top down really do that all that good. And far too often, they don't even con- control for differences in students attending these schools. So another unintended consequence of these top-down mechanisms is that schools are essentially punished for serving you know, disadvantaged students. Um, and they, you know, they could be doing a good job at shaping the test scores, uh, but a lot of a lot of uh, top-down accountability mechanisms don't take into account the differences in the students or even test score growth, which which um, would be a better way of doing it. But again, you know, I don't I don't believe that test scores are all as valuable as they're cracked up cracked up to be. And then, you know, I'll also say that 
you know, some some conservatives will say, well, we, we need to get more conservative, you know, viewpoints into the education system. And I understand that argument as well. But again, as a libertarian, that's just another way of trying to force your beliefs on someone else. The easier solution is just to let people sort and to allow for a pluralistic society in the United States. That's the, kind of the point of being an American, that we can embrace our own cultures and to allow for tolerance of other people's ideas and to allow for that pluralistic society that the founders envisioned um, and to allow people to pick their schools. You know, if you think that your government school has too much left leaning indoctrination going on and there's there is some evidence of that, then you should just be able to take your kids out of that system and send your kids somewhere else. You shouldn't have to wait until uh, the government somehow fix it. And, and you know, th- and that's what we've tried for far too long. We've tried to use the political process to fix this behemoth uh, government school system that that does not change. Um, and, and, and all we've essentially done is increased spending and increased waste in, in resources towards this huge system that that is essentially beyond repair. And, you know, look, rich people can already do this and pull their kids out of the schools that are failing their children. Um, but really, I mean, essentially what school choice opponents are saying is that low income families should just have to suck it up and wait and, and wait for their saviors to come fix their failing schools, which, and my argument is that no, low income families, no family should have to wait for their schools to get any better. Um, and they should be able to have choice right away because the, you know, the, the track record has been horrible for schools actually, uh, you know, getting better and improving and no one should have to wait anymore. So we often end our program with a silly question about uh, a scholar's area of expertise and uh, in your case, education. Are there any, uh, do you have any favorite movies about education in general uh, that maybe are a, a, a light into your policy area? Yeah, well, just off the top of my head, the new Netflix documentary, Miss Virginia. And, you know, I'm biased because it's about the uh, D.C., uh, voucher program that started in around 2003, I believe. And it, it goes over the story of a low-income family of a, of a person uh, who I call a friend, uh, Virginia Walden Ford. And it, it really outlines her story of how they actually got this program passed against all odds for low-income families to be able to choose their schools for their children in the District of Columbia. So it's a really um, you know, motivational uh, documentary. It's done really well. Uh, it's actually a movie. It's it's not you know using actual clips of, of things. So it's a recreation. It, use, it uses uh, pretty top top actors. It uses uh, Uzo Aduba uh, Aduba from um, Orange Is the New Black, and it even has one of the the main actors from Stranger Things. Uh, so it's a really well done movie. Uh, I am biased because it's about school choice and it's favorable for the fight to the fight for school choice. But overall, it's just a really well done movie as well. And even if you're not a school choice um, geek like me. Uh, I think a lot of people can get motivated from it and and get a lot of takeaways from it. And and again, it's just really exciting movie and, and very well done. And I highly, highly recommend it. All right. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much. It's good talking to you guys. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.